Very good morning to you. From, from me, I'm, I'm Dave Thompson, one of the uh, leaders of the church here. I want to bring a, a message to us from, from God's Word. If you have a Bible, you might want to have it open in front of you. Uh, it's from the book of Numbers in the Old Testament. And I'm going to start in chapter 13 and uh, carry on into chapter 14, actually. So uh, I hope you're sitting comfortably. But this is one of the great stories of the Old Testament. And it's always good to hear a good story, isn't it? So uh, I'm just going to read then from from Numbers chapter 13 and, and verse 17. When Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said to them, go up through the Negev and on into the hill country. See what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees on it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. It was the season for the first ripe grapes. So they went up and explored the land from the desert of Zin as far as Rehob towards Libo Hamath. They went up through the Negev and came to Hebron, where Ahiman and Sheshai and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, lived. Hebron had been built seven years before Zon in Egypt. When they reached the valley of Eshkol, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. Two of them carried it on a pole between them, along with some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the Valley of Eshkol. Because of the cluster of grapes, the Israelites cut off there. At the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is the fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes and we looked the same to them. That night, all the people of the community raised their voices and and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this desert. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, We should choose a leader And go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. 
Joshua son of Nun and Caleb son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and we'll give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not be afraid of the people of the land because we will swallow them up. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. Well, let's pray together, shall we, before we we get stuck into this, this story. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Every word of it teaches us about you and about your plans and your purposes. Lord, I just pray that your word would come to us again this morning, that you would speak to us. I pray, Lord, that faith would come. We don't want to be about empty words. We know there is power in your scripture. So, Lord, as we open this word together, Lord, we just pray, would you come, Holy Spirit, be moving in hearts and lives, Lord, be building faith, be releasing your potential among us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this is my penultimate message here. (laughs) Well, that's good. It's good to hear a few hours. Cheers would have been disappointing at that point. (laughs) This isn't my my last one, but I I preach again, God willing, in in a month from now. But this is uh, second to last. And if you don't know, I'm about to move with my family onto uh, Grace Church in Chichester. And... uh, and it's just extraordinary how God has led me personally and, and us as a family to this point. You know, we're, we're not the kind of flitting around type of people. And, you know, ask us, you know, two years ago, and we, we would have just been sure that we were going to grow old in, in Winchester and would have been just very happy with that being the case. And yet God has just worked on us in such a gracious way just kind of shaking the, the dirt off the roots, you know, loosening our roots here in, in Winchester. And I would say I'm really excited for the future. I'm really looking forward to, to getting stuck in down in Chichester. There is much to do down there. But nonetheless, it is incredibly hard to leave. You know, we've, we've been here for, for many years, best part of 20 years. And, you know, when, when you come as like a really a kid student, you know, like like we were when we, we arrived here, me and Ali. You, you kind of grow up through that. There's been a maturing, you know, there's, and, and that kind of developmental stage of your life. You know, you, you can't go back. You know, there's something that we have got from being here in Winchester that, that you know, you just can't replace anywhere else. And, and so, you know, it's, it's kind of exciting, but it's also scary. And I tell you what, in our lives, we feel like we are on a threshold of something new and amazing. Certainly a, a new season in, in our lives and, uh, and for us a new place, a new venue uh, where we hope that God will kind of bless us and, and work through us and, and bring fruit in, in what it is we're doing. But I think the same could be said for us as a church here, for Winchester Family Church. There is this overwhelming sense, I believe, that we're on a, a threshold of, of a new season, 
of a new thing that God is going to do amongst us. And so I just felt led to this passage. You know that uh, John and and Steve are are preaching through the, the life of Elijah. And that's great just to, to hear what God's saying to us through then. We, we, we kind of decided that in these last two messages of mine, that rather than just kind of tuck in with that, that series, I would sort of bring something you know, that I just felt God wanted to say. And in some ways that's quite hard because then you're sort of looking at the Bible and thinking, well, is there a message in here somewhere? And, and yet I do feel actually that God's led me to this passage, that it is a word for us at this time. You see... Israel, as a nation, we're kind of in a similar position here, being on a threshold of something new, a threshold of of an inheritance that God had promised for them. The story so far was it was actually two years since Israel had been delivered from Egypt and they they passed through the the, the Red Sea and uh, they'd seen God do some amazing things with them in that time. Uh, there was the parting of the Red Sea. There was the, the, they defeated the Amalekite army. And, uh, and then they got to Mount Sinai and, and just saw the, the glory of God descend on the, the mountain. And they received the Ten Commandments and, and, and the rest of the law. And it had it, been an amazing time. There had also been some struggles through that, that period. They pretty much grumbled their way through the desert. They grumbled about a lack of water. And God provided water and they grumbled again about the lack of food and, and God provided manna, food for them to eat. And uh, at Mount Sinai, they, they'd made this idol out of gold and began to worship the, the idol. So yeah, there had been struggles along the way, but it'd been a journey. And now they arrived at the place called Kadesh, Kadesh Barnea. And it was right at the border of Canaan. They knew that God had been leading them to a promised land, a promised inheritance. And now here they were, they'd arrived, they'd arrived at the doorstep. And so Moses sent 12 spies out into this new land just to kind of check it out, to to see what the people were like and to see what the the natural resources were like, to see what the the cities were like and to, to bring back a report and, uh, and the story we read, we, we heard the report that these spies brought back. Well, I do believe that we as a church are standing on this kind of threshold of uh, a new season. We're, we're in a significant level of transition, aren't we? Even for us, you know, there's always kind of something changing. But I just feel at the moment, there's actually quite a lot changing. There's, there's of course, the changes in, in, in leadership. As, as Steve has come with Annette and it's great and take over the, the, the lead elder role from, from John and, and, and obviously me going. I don't know what effect that has, but I guess an effect somewhere is <laughs> there's, there's me going. I think the fact that we paid off the, this building, you know, in such tremendous fashion last week. I was kind of thinking back through my, my years here. I would say that from the, the mid 80s, I arrived in sort of 1990, 1990, 1991-ish. But from the mid 80s, this church has been raising money to pay for a building, some description. First of all, it was for the building of our, our venue at Stanmore Lane. And, uh, and when I came to Winchester, that building was under construction and we were meeting in a, in a school up at the King's School. And... Uh, 
we, we moved as a church into that building and, and it was exciting, but really it was only a few years before we were thinking, right, we've now got to either expand this building or we've got to look for a new building. So straight away we were back into how are we going to raise the finances for that and, and trusting God through that. And then, of course, all the time we've been here, we've, we've been looking for God to release finances. So, you know, for the best part of 25 years... This church has had as its kind of identity raising money for buildings. And the significance of the fact, yeah, we just feel we've got there. Now, that doesn't mean God's finished with us. That doesn't mean there's not going to be challenges ahead. But in terms of this kind of raising money for buildings, I just feel, you know, that we are in a changing season. There's just change in, in the air. It's, uh, it's great what we're just seeing uh, happen amongst us at the moment. For the, the Valentine's meal evening was fantastic. Even the men's curry last, uh, whenever it was, Friday, was, uh, was, was just great. It's just, do you know what I feel? There is a life about us at the moment. There is an energy. And it's not just the chocolate. You know, there, there is a, a kind of a sense of God upon us. And I believe there's much more to come, especially in terms of salvation. Dare we believe... We are at a Kadesh Barnea moment. I think we could be. I think God is saying there's something of an inheritance for this church. Promises unfulfilled. And we could just be standing at the threshold. Well, I want us to make a, a few points as we look at this passage. The first is we have the first fruits of a great inheritance. Whenever you read through scripture it's important to realise what is emphasised. Because sometimes, as you look, look through Scripture, it can kind of focus on, on a one point or one part of the story, and you think, why, why is that given so much attention? And as I'm reading through this story that I read, I was thinking that about the grapes. What is it about the grapes? It's like, Moses, when he's, when he's writing the book of Numbers, he, he just kind of gets a thing about the grapes. And, and he, he just goes on about them. I mean, you look at verse 23 to 24. He says, when they reached the valley of Eshcol, and, and that means cluster, okay, it was named after the grapes, they cut off a branch, bearing a single cluster of grapes. Two of them carried it on a pole between them along with some pomegranates and figs. The place was called the Valley of the Cluster. Because of the cluster of grapes, the Israelites cut off there. Now, why not just say the grapes were big? Yeah, nice grapes in that land. Now, we get detail. We, we get attention to the grapes. Now, the grapes aren't just a bit of colour in the story there. They're significant. And in, uh, in the... the Earlier verses, when Moses is, is giving the instructions to the, the spies who are going to go and check out the land, he adds a little author's note. In verse 20, he says, It was the season for the first ripe grapes. It literally says, It was the first fruits of the grape harvest. Now, first fruits were... Were, were eagerly anticipated. It, it was the first of the new harvest. It kind of broke the, the famine from, from winter. 
and, and you, you looked forward to the, the, the harvest coming and, and when you'd get that first bit of fruit in your hands and, and uh, typically when you got the, the first fruits in your hand, it didn't stick around for long. You, you kind of gobbled it straight down because cause you were so looking forward to that, that fruit coming in. You see, the first fruits, it, it broke the famine, but it also held promise for the future. It said, okay, this is like a down payment. This is like the first sample. And when you get this, you know that the harvest is coming. You know that it's on its way. And these spies, they carried the the grapes on a pole. Now, when I was at Sunday school, I, I think it kind of was said, you know, that the grapes were so big that they had to be carried on a pole. And you sort of picture I don't know about as a child, probably as an adult as well. You picture grapes like watermelons, you know, in this enormous cluster that, that it took two men to lift. So they put it on a pole. Well, does that ring true to you? I don't think so. It was a fertile land, but it wasn't that fertile. I mean, it, I think these grapes, why were they carried on a pole? It's not because they were huge. It's because they were holy. It's because they were holy. It's, it's because they recognized the significance I said, we need to preserve these, we need to bring these back to our people so that we can deal with them correctly. The concept of first fruits is very important right the way throughout Scripture. And the Israelites would already be familiar with this because it had already been written into their sacrificial system. They took the first, most treasured part of the harvest and they gave it back to God. You see, it was holy. They, they dedicated it back to God. But uh, it was more than just about giving. You see, it was, a, it was a holiness issue. And the first fruits were holy because they contained the promise of God. You see, this was a promise of God's blessing. The harvest is coming. And, uh, and it was recognized as the promise of God. The first fruits were a down payment, a statement of what was to come. So when the Israelites saw the grapes, the the first fruits of the harvest, they didn't just think, oh yeah, nice grapes. Nice grapes, yeah, we'll go in there, it's nice grapes. Now it's much more profound. You see, they saw the grapes and they thought, we can see the promise of God. We can see that, that this is like a down payment. We're not in the promised land yet, but God is already there. He's, he's working on our behalf. And to prove that, here's a down payment. Here's a, a free sample. Guaranteeing that there is much more to come. Now in the New Testament, the concept of first fruits is uh, very important. It's applied to Jesus himself as the, the first fruit of the, the resurrection from the dead. It's applied to the, the Holy Spirit and the the. the Uh, We have the Holy Spirit in our lives and that is a down payment of everything we will receive in God, in glory, in the future. But it's also applied throughout Scripture to the promised expansion of God's kingdom as people are saved and added to the church. You see, there is a harvest, but in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, In God's eternal plan and purpose, it's not a harvest of grapes, it's a harvest of people. And in fact, Israel was described in Jeremiah, the Israelite people were described as the first fruits 
of his harvest. You see, God has a plan for a massive people. A people who are restored to him, to his praise and and his worship, declaring the glory of God forever. A massive people. And the Jews, they were were never it. They they were the starts. They they were the down payment. You see, the first fruits. Not not the whole harvest. They were just the promise of what God was going to do. The first fruits of his harvest. But you also say, I mean, let me give you a couple of examples. In, in Romans 16, okay, right at the end of the book of Romans, Paul is making some greetings to various people. And he says, greet my dear friend Epenetus, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Now, you can read that. He was the first convert. And you think, well, that's a nice bit of detail. And uh, you think, hmm, nice. The NIV kind of misses it in, in that version, which just says he was the first convert. Actually, what the Bible tells us there is that this man, Epenetus, was the first fruit. That's the word that's used. He was the first fruit of all those saved in Asia. It's the same in 1 Corinthians 16, 15. It says, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, that's Greece. He's saying they were the first fruits of the converts in Greece. Now, when a Jew read that, and they would understand the concept of first fruits, and what was implied by it, they wouldn't just think, oh, right, they were the first to be saved, and then there were others. No, they were the first fruits. You see, it's a down payment. There is a promise implied. This isn't the entire harvest. This is just the start. And, and actually, the promise of God is revealed, and there is a mighty harvest about to come. You see, and it's, it's all written in to those words. Now, when I look at this church, us as a church together, I see all these signs of life. I, I see prophetic words, promises that we, we live by, Promises of influence or a river flowing through this place that goes out and blesses the the nations. I believe things like the soup kitchen that that we started on a on a Thursday night, and and just the kind of favour that's that's coming from that with with the rough sleepers in 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 the city with with uh, other agencies in the city. I swear it's, it's a sign of life. And uh, I, I would just commend Tom Foster for, for his leadership and in the way he's kind of brought that together and, and, and worked that through, doing a tremendous job. I think the way we've seen the use of this building increase so dramatically. We're just seeing so many uh, hirings now and, and uh, people coming in and out of this building through the week. And, and uh, again, I, I would just commend Brian while I'm talking about it. Brian Leatham, who handles that, and his team, and Mark Freeman. You know, it's, it's a lot of work, but it's a sign of life. The gift day we've talked about. We're seeing one or two saved, aren't we? And we want to see more. You know, we want to see, we want to see teams of people actually finding Jesus as their Lord of Saviour and, and Lord and Saviour, what, what do we make of the, the ones or twos that we see saved at the moment? Are we kind of disappointed and we think, oh, well, yeah, that's a, that's a bit small? Or do we think, oh, that's the first fruit? That's, that's like a down payment. And I think this is a season where we need to see that. We need to celebrate it as a down payment, as a promise 
of what is to come. We've seen people baptised in the last year, and that's fantastic. Let's be in faith. There's a down payment. I don't know, let's think of names. Craig Rule. The first fruits of the converts in Winchester. Sean Westwood. The first fruits of the converts in Winchester. It would be great, wouldn't it, to see that fulfilled. We long for God to give us an inheritance of the lost, for God to build his church as a kingdom expands. And we say, yeah, please God, let it happen. Well, this should have been Israel's finest hour. They'd been delivered from Egypt. They'd seen God move in power. They'd received this tangible proof that God was promising them an inheritance. But they didn't walk into the land. They got so close and they blew it. And why did they blow it? It's because their eyes suddenly went to these giants. They they saw giants. You see, the land that they were to take was occupied territory. And suddenly the desert looked very attractive. And the people in the land were were bigger than they were. There there were different people groups there. And uh, probably genetically they they were sort of slightly larger. That's where Goliath kind of came from. But I think also they were probably just bigger because they lived in a fertile land. They probably had a a protein-rich diet. And uh, the Israelites, they'd been slaves for a few generations and, uh, and, and probably were just a smaller people. And uh, I love going to India because uh, in this country, I'm pretty short. And uh, I look up to most people. When I go to India, I'm, I'm taller than everybody. And it does my ego good. And uh, I, I love it. But uh, if you would go back sort of, I don't know, 100 years or a couple hundred years in this country, then everybody would have been short here too. It's, it's a diet thing. But uh, as the Israelites looked at these people, you know, they just seemed huge. And, and the spies gave an exaggerated report, which, uh, which just sowed fear in, in their, their hearts. But the people were big. The cities were well fortified. And the Israelites thought there is no way that we are going to be able to take that land. And, and they responded in fear. And when you stand on the threshold of a a promised inheritance, like I really believe we do as a church, there can nonetheless be giants ahead of us in the land. These are the, the, the strongholds of the enemy. Things that make you think, yeah, it was a good idea, but but now I'm not, not so sure. Now now I don't think it, it can work. And I'm afraid of what might happen. And it would be better if we, we didn't even try. And uh, if, you're, if we're going to see an inheritance here, then we've got to be prepared to walk in it. We've got to be prepared to, to, as a church, corporately proclaim the gospel. We've got to be prepared to, to do what it takes to build church strongly and, and do it well. But even in Winchester, there are some fierce-looking enemies that would seek to keep the lid on Winchester Family Church. Seek to keep the church silent. And your own witness in your own life, silence. 
the strongholds of the enemy that we face are, are things like materialism and postmodernism and evolutionism and, and all sorts of other isms that just stand against the, the declaration of the gospel. It's all these things that say about the gospel, you are not coming in here. I mean, take, take materialism as an example. You notice your neighbour has a brand new BMW. And then you think, do they really need the gospel? And when you ask them, and, and you say, look, can, can I tell you about Jesus? And they say, no, no, I don't really need, I don't really need Jesus. I, I don't really need that religion. I, I feel like I've got life sorted. And you actually feel in your spirit, as you're talking to them, I see what he means. Actually, he does look like he's got life sorted. I used to really struggle with this, actually. Well, in my last job, I was working with a bunch of engineers. They're quite intelligent people. They're reasonably well paid. They just kind of enjoy life. You know, they, they enjoy meeting with friends. They've got good, nice homes. And, and I, could, I just knew that feeling of, have I actually got any right to tell them about Jesus? And materialism is a voice that says the gospel is not welcome here. Come no further. Or take postmodernism. Now that's massive in our culture. Everyone determines for themselves what is true. You have no right to impose your views or your beliefs on someone else. So you hear the message, if, if you want to do church in your building with the doors closed, then that's fine. But don't come out on the high street. Don't, don't proclaim the message outside. We don't want to hear you. You stay in, in your box. Or if someone says to you, I've, I've decided that, that religion is, is just not for me. And you think... Well, I respect that. You know, you, you've made your choice. That's, that's a closed door now. I won't, I won't go there. They, they've decided what they're going to do. And, and it's the voice of postmodernism. As soon as you think that you have no right, no authority to proclaim the gospel, you know that there is a, a sneering, snarling stronghold of postmodernism saying the gospel cannot come in here. And uh, evolutionism is, is the same. Evolution presents a worldview that has no requirement for a sovereign creator God. It says that everything we see, including human life, is a, a product of chance, random processes. And to think differently would be highly unscientific, out of date, and even a little bit stupid. Well, I'm... I'm reading a book at the moment by, by a guy called Norman Nevin, and, and the title of the book is this, Should Christians Embrace Evolution? And it, it looks at um, what would happen to, to our uh, faith and, and theology and doctrine of the Christian faith if, if we take on evolution, and you just find it's undermined and undermined and undermined, and, and, and you cannot reconcile the two. That's the... the thesis of the book and it also says it also looks at modern scientific cutting edge uh, fields of, of study and says actually when you take that latest research the very best scientific knowledge there is no reason to to feel you have to adopt evolutionism the bible stands as truth but when your classmates and your work colleagues and and they all believe in evolution and you know it 
Are you going to put up your hand and say, well, actually, I believe the Bible when it says that God created the world. Or are you going to think, oh, I can't say that. How stupid am I going to look if, if I say that? It's a giant. It's, it's the voice of the enemy saying the gospel is not welcome here. You, you can't take it there. You go this far, but no further. And these are the enemies we face in our, our culture. There are others. Individualism, lots of isms. It's not just about you sharing your own faith in the world. I think actually these things stand against our advance as a church. They stand against us claiming our inheritance. If you feel that God is calling you to, to serve him in a new way or in a, in a new place, then there will be giants. There will be voices telling you that you are woefully underqualified. That you've got nothing to offer. The Israelites looked back over the, the, the desert and they thought, wouldn't it be better if we just went back that way? Wouldn't it be better if we just stayed in the desert? I mean, Egypt wasn't so bad. Many times over the last year when we've been looking at moving to Chichester, uh, you know, I've, and we've been beginning to, to plan for it, but I've had, <laughs> had these thoughts in my head. I know I have. Do we really need to go? You know, if, if I just keep my head down and keep quiet, couldn't, couldn't we avoid it? Couldn't, couldn't we just stay here? Wouldn't that be easier? Wouldn't we save ourselves just a whole lot of trouble? And I think it's scary going somewhere new. What if, what if people don't like me when I get there? What if they think I'm a waste of space? You know, and these are the battles, you know, the battles that I go through. But I know that God is calling us forward. The enemy would love to say, no, you're not coming here. You're not claiming your inheritance in this direction. I've got news for the enemy. We're, we're coming. We're, we're going. So uh, he better get used to it. But whenever God's calling you to step up to a new thing, and here in Winchester, it, it, it can be scary. So what is our response? Let's just finish there. Caleb said, we should go up and take possession of the land. For we can certainly do it. The giants look fierce, but he says, we will swallow them up. And then he gives the reason. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. And there are many things that would conspire against the success, and against our advance as a church. But we need to have Caleb faith. Their protection is gone. The Lord is with us. And the reason we can step boldly into the, the next season, the reason we can be loud with our worship, declare with conviction that Jesus is the only way, that he is the only hope for people's lives in this city, is because the Lord is with us. It's because we are in Christ. And that is the wonderful truth of the gospel. We don't just believe in Jesus with our minds. We are united with him in every way. Let's just, as I get towards the end, let's look at some wonderful verses in Colossians. Colossians 2 verse 13 says this. God made you alive with Christ. You were lost in your sin. If you're not a Christian here this morning, then here's a news flash for you. God is holy. And you are going to receive his righteous judgment for the sin in your life. That's the message of the Bible. 
Well, it's the start of it anyway. Because the next bit of the message is this. God, not wanting that any should perish, sent Jesus, his son, into the world. God became man. And he died on the cross. And in that suffering and death, he took that judgment, which should have been yours. He took your judgment on himself. And when you believe that, and when you begin to live your life on that basis alone, then you know that God has made you alive with Christ. You're now united with Jesus. You have to be united with Jesus. Otherwise, his death wouldn't have any relevance for you. But now, whatever Jesus has done, it's, it's almost like you've done it because you're so united with him. You're, you're inseparable. His performance, his actions are attributed to you. So he died to sin. You have died to sin. It's dealt with. It's history. He rose from the dead in power. You live by that same power in in your life, the power of Jesus. He reigns over all things. Well, you will reign with him over new heavens and new earth. And you know what Jesus has done to these strongholds of the enemy? These voices that say the gospel will not come here. Well, let's look at Colossians 2.15, just a little way on in that passage. It says, Jesus has disarmed the powers and authorities and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Hallelujah. I was in London once when a bomb exploded. It was in 94, summer of 94, and someone set off a a car bomb in front of the Israeli embassy. And uh, I was a, that was in Kensington. I was about a mile away in Paddington. But I remember hearing that most enormous explosion. It's, it's a bit like someone driving a car at full speed into the side of a, a container, a cargo container. That kind of metal-on-metal echoing kind of crunch. And uh, you hear that sound and you just think, wow, there's no way that energy could be contained. That's destructive. Now, I was remembering this uh, last summer. We went to some military museum. I can't remember where. But you know they have these kind of shells there on display, these kind of heavy metal bombs. And, and they're there. Yeah, you just can't help going up to them and just kind of tapping on them. Tink, 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 tink. And last year, as I was tapping on this bomb, tink, tink, I couldn't help remember the sound of this enormous explosion and uh, thinking, should I really be just bashing on this tink, tink, on this bomb? But of course I knew it was safe. It's been disarmed. The, the, the power has, has been taken out of it. Now Jesus has disarmed the powers and authorities. He's made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Their protection is gone. They are powerless because the Lord is with us. We are in Christ. So your position is exactly the same as the the Israelites sat there looking at the giants in the land and hearing Caleb say their protection is gone. The Lord is with us. So don't shrink back. Don't shrink back in the face of the isms of this world. Materialism and postmodernism and evolutionism and all the other isms. 
Don't shrink back in the face of other religions. And you think, have we got a right to stand against? Of course we do. Don't shrink back from anything that says you have no right to take the kingdom of God here. You have every right. You have every right to be a proud witness for Jesus. We have every authority before God to declare it as a church that it is the message of the gospel that we stand for. We need to get in the newspaper. We need to get in the the media. We need to be more confident, I think, that we have the answer. We have the truth that people need to hear. And if you feel that you have the call of God on your life, whatever reason, you feel you've been disqualified, you know, because the tasks seem too great or the cost too high, or the, the future just too uncertain. Maybe this is a time when God just wants to give you fresh faith. You know, make those dreams live in you again. A Caleb faith that says we can certainly take this land. And of course we walk humbly and obediently with God. You know, we respond to the direction of the Holy Spirit. The Israelites, the next thing that happens in the story is that the Israelites realize they've messed up. And so they say, well, let's go anyway. Let's go and attack the land anyway. And so they go in their own strength. They, they have like a running battle and, and they fail miserably because God wasn't with them. He hadn't told them to go and do that. And, and it failed. And I'm not saying that we are kind of reckless Or that we grab hold of everyone we meet and start reciting Romans at them. Or or that we start 20 different ministry initiatives next week in in the church. No, we, we we need to be sensitive to God. But the point is, we do not listen to the taunts of the enemy. You know, the voices that say, you are too weak. That say, you are, you have no rights. You are doomed to failure. And rather we listen for the the voice of God. And the time when he says to you, this is the moment. This is the moment when you could share your faith. This is the moment when when you could give that that little word of of testimony. This is the moment you could step out in faith, walk into that land that I am giving you. Well, what do we think? Is Is it a true picture? Are we right to take this season, this account of the life of Israel, and apply it to us as a church? If we're not, then what I've just said for the last 40 minutes is a complete waste of time. Actually, I genuinely believe it is right. I believe we are at this season, at this juncture in our life as a church, where God is calling us in to take new ground. Well, let's be bold. Let's, let's not hear the voice of the enemy saying, no, actually you can't go in that direction. You can't go that way. Rather, we need to hear the truth. The Lord is with us. The Lord is with us. Let's move forward. Let's grab every opportunity that comes our way. Amen? Amen.